Today we're talking about the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And uh, I want to annotate here and get a um, spotlight if I can. Yep. And uh, we're talking about that 400 year period approximately. And uh, I have put the notes here on the thing too, if you didn't print them out. Uh, I have uh, got them here. I was trying to get rid of that thing at the top there, but doesn't seem to want to go, got to exit out there. So uh, start here with some introductory uh, remarks about this. And I say, uh, for someone who has read and is familiar with the Old Testament, and then begins reading the New Testament, it soon becomes obvious that the historical, political, and religious situation is different from the close of the Old Testament in and around 400 BC. The book of Nehemiah records the last narrative events of the Old Testament during the reign of the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. He died about 424 BC. Uh, a remnant of the Jewish people had been allowed to return to Jerusalem and then silence before the curtain rises on the birth of Jesus. Two chapters into the New Testament, we find a Roman appointed king in Judea, that's Herod. He was actually a Roman. Three chapters in, and we encounter Pharisees and Sadducees. Chapter four finds Jesus preaching um, in the synagogue. Eight. Mm -hmm. Yes, 4A. Everybody's got their audio on again. Follow me. Can you hear me, Paula? Paula, you've got your audio on. Okay, mute yourself there. Um, so uh, the question is, you know, where did all these people come from? You know, these Pharisees, these Sadducees, all these uh, various groups and so forth. How did all these cultural changes take place? Uh, it's really quite a bit different looking situation from the close of the Old Testament and the beginning of the Old Testament. And looks, let's look at some of those differences here <clears throat> that I'm talking about. We have in the New Testament now, uh, religious parties of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Of course, they're not in the Old Testament at all. Political parties like the Zealots, the Herodians, of course, that's uh, related to Herod the Great. And of course, nothing like that in the Old Testament. And we have, uh, as we read the New Testament, all about synagogues. Jews are meeting in synagogues. Paul's preaching in synagogues. Well, there's no synagogue in the Old Testament, there's no, um, no, no biblical text about uh, starting seminaries or requiring seminaries or allowing for, or, I mean, seminaries, <laughs> sorry, synagogues. So, uh, you know, where did these synagogues come from? Well, that's, a, again, an intertestamental situation. You've got rabbis in the New Testament. You've got rabbinic, rabbinic schools like Hillel. Shammai Paul is, was a student of the Hillel school and himself under Gamaliel. Where did those come from? 
you got the prominence of Greek culture rather than Canaanite religion. The Old Testament, you've got, you know, pagan religions, Baal, Malachi, and all that. And all of a sudden now, in the New Testament, you've got Greek religion, Greek gods and goddesses, Paul encounters and so forth. And you've got a different language among the Jewish people becoming prominent. And that's a language called the Aramaic language rather than the Hebrew. Uh, so Jews are, for the most part, speaking Aramaic in Judea. And you've probably heard that about Jesus probably spoke Aramaic as his main language rather than Hebrew, which was what was being spoken at the end of the Old Testament period. And then uh, Greek is actually sort of the lingua franca. Lingua franca is a term that means the sort of the trade language, the international language. English is sort of like that in many parts of the world. It's kind of a universal language that people, a lot of, a lot of people speak in different parts of the world. <clears throat> and Greek was like that in the Roman world, even though Ro the official Ro language of Rome was Latin, uh, there was actually more Greek spoken on the streets of Rome than there was Latin. And people in Rome, most of them could understand Greek too. Uh, number six, the high priest, along with the chief priest, have taken on political functions as well as ceremonial. So you have the high priest who's a very important person. And uh, as we'll see in their testimony period, he, he becomes a real political, becomes a political office, an officer. Uh, Rome, not Persia, is in control of Palestine. When you leave the Old Testament, uh, Cyrus has allowed the Jews to return and Persia is in control. And now we have Rome in control. How did that happen? Where did Rome is not even in the picture. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Palestine is divided into Judea, Galilee, Samaria, on the east side of Jordan, or Perea, into the capitalists. Um, and um, Palestine, uh, I, I, I'm, let me just make a mention here about Palestine. It's, it's often difficult to know um, exactly what to call um, the land of Israel. Sometimes when I'm teaching, do you call it the land of Israel, the Holy land? And, and, and one term is Palestine. It's a convenient term. And so I say here, Palestine is divided into, uh, Judea, uh, Galilee, Samaria on the east side of Jordan, Perea and Decapolis on the other side. But when I use the term Palestine, I'm using it strictly in a geographical sense. It has nothing to do with modern day Palestinians. Uh, I'm talking about, uh, there's, there's the uh, period of time of Jesus. You've got, uh, well, I guess I didn't get to keep my little uh, annotation thing here. Try my spotlight again. Um, so you've got, uh, you know, Judea down here, the province of Judea that includes Samaria, Perea. Here's the Decapolis, which is a Gentile region over here on the West Bank, Galilee up here. Um, I'm talking about uh, this particular area, we might say right here, uh, the land of Israel, uh, this, call it here, British Palestine. How did the name Palestine come about? Where did we get that name from? 
The name Palestine derives from the word uh, Philistia. Uh, it's the way the Greeks referred uh, to the Philistines. They use this term to refer to the Philistines. And uh, so that's where it comes from. And it wasn't really in use at all until after the New Testament period. I'm sure we're all familiar with the fact that the Romans destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. And uh, that was the first Jewish revolt. The Jews revolted against Rome in AD 66 and the Romans came in, destroyed the temple, took supposedly a million prisoners, a uh, hundred thousand prisoners, I'm sorry, at least, um, took a large number and devastated the land. But then the Jews actually revolted again in the second century under a fellow named Bar Kokhba. And so the Romans came in again. And this time Emperor Hadrian was determined to stamp out Judaism. And so he, he uh, changed the name of the province of Judea as it was called, to Palestine. He chose that name precisely in order to do away with any Jewish idea, because Judah is, you know, Judah, Jews, Jew, the word Jew is from Judea. Uh, Jew is somebody from Judea. And so he wanted to get rid of that entirely, so he took that ancient name of the Philistines and called it Palestine. To, to get away with that, to, to, to rid the, the land of that Jewish influence. And uh, so uh, we skip ahead to World War One, World War One, and at that time the Turks, the Ottoman Turks, were in, were, were in control of all this area, about the Middle East pretty much. And they were allied with the Germans in World War One. And so when they lost, they lost control of all this territory and the British gained control of this, this mandated territory here, uh, and they gained control of all this. And uh, so uh, they called it Palestine. The British called it Palestine. And that's where we get our modern idea of Palestine. They call it Palestine. And uh, you might remember that, uh, and this comes from this, the famous Balfour uh, Declaration, a British foreign secretary declared after World War I that there should be a homeland for the Jews, and that's been the basis of Jewish of Zionism and so forth. Um, and so um, they called it Palestine. And so in those years after World War I, the Jews who lived in this area were called Palestinians. The Jews were called Palestinians. <laughs> the, the Arabs were called Syrians. They called themselves Syrians, and the Jews called themselves Palestinians. But in 1948, when the Jews uh, formed the state of Israel, then they started calling themselves obviously Israelis, and the Arabs took over the turn. They started calling themselves Palestinians. <laughs> so the long and short of that is the Palestinians today don't really have anything necessarily to do with Palestine as we're talking about. So when I talk about Palestine or the land of Palestine, I'm talking about this area here, which has generally been, you know, it's been a Jewish area for uh, thousands of years. Uh, well, uh, so one final thing here, number eight, uh, we're talking about differences here. 
uh, Jews are no longer confined to Palestine, uh, but are now, there are now Jewish communities in most major cities of the Roman Empire with their own synagogues. This is known as the diaspora or the dispersion. So here's, a, here's an unusual thing because the Old Testament is based on the fact that Israel is going to be living in the land and they're going to have a central sanctuary. They brought the tabernacle first into the land of Shiloh. Then Solomon built a temple and they, and so Jerusalem was the center of worship and Jews were expected to come to Jerusalem. Males were expected to come three times a year at least. And so Judaism as a religion needed to be practiced in the land, but now Jews have been dispersed. And so when we get to the new Testament period, um, get to the new Testament period, um, they're all over the place. And we know that, you know, when Paul goes on his missionary journeys, he finds Jews everywhere in, you know, in Rome and Greece and in the area that we think of as Turkey today, which is, you know, Asia Minor and Galatia and these areas, he finds Jews, Jewish synagogues everywhere he goes. So uh, that's something that's totally different from the Old Testament that you wouldn't have imagined Jews being dispersed everywhere. But that comes about because of the captivities, Babylonian and Assyrian captivities and so forth. Um, C, capital C down here, uh, the intertestinal period provides some answers. So that's one reason we are studying this and looking at this is because uh, by studying the intertestinal period, we can find some answers to these kinds of questions and these differences that we see uh, from the Old Testament as we enter the New Testament period and read our New Testament. And we might ask ourselves, does one need extra biblical sources like I'm going to talk about? We're going to be talking about the Bible quite a bit, but extra biblical sources, history, to understand the Bible. And the answer is no, no. One doesn't need any extra biblical sources to understand the basic message of the New Testament. Uh, the Bible as we have it is sufficiently clear. There's a doctrine uh, you probably heard Pastor Ken speak of called perspicuity, perspicuity. It came out of the Reformation. And whereas the Catholic Church said, you know, you can't really understand the Bible as a believer. You've got to listen to what the priest says. The church is the interpreter of the Bible and you can't read your Bible. And you don't need a Bible. And so the reformers said, no, everyone can should have a Bible and they can read and understand the basic message of the Bible, the central message. So the, the, the Bible as a whole is sufficiently clear. It's not perfectly clear. Not everything is equally clear, you know, not every detail. Uh, but the central message uh, as worked out is, is understood. You know, the basic outline of creation, the fall, redemption, the consummation, these are so simple that even a child can understand these kinds of things. And I've known people, actually met people, known students, and heard of many people who have, you know, been saved simply by reading their Bibles. They didn't really have any much contact. I mean, uh, I've heard of people in other countries where they had no contact with Christianity, got a Bible, and got saved. So one doesn't have to have all these kinds of things to understand the basic message of the Bible. 
But knowing you know, about this period can help us understand some of the details, can enrich our understanding of the New Testament. The first readers of the New Testament would have understand, understood most of all these things. They lived during that period. They weren't faced with some of the problems we have. We have, uh, you know, in the New Testament, we see new historical features, cultural, political, and everything like that. And so we face a problem of distance and uh, we have a historical difference distance. We're 2,000 years removed from the uh, details. Uh, the geography is unusual, strange to us. The politics, the economics, uh, there are cultural differences, uh, you know, religious difference, the customs are different. And so, you know, it's, these are not automatically understood. Uh, you have to kind of look at them and study them if you want to get the finer details. But that's just the way it is. And under, in order to understand something, you know, you have to get it in its context. And the historical difference can become, can, can happen very quickly. I was reminded of this when Pansy and I were watching a commercial, a Geico commercial. And in this Geico commercial, they, I had to look it up on the internet to get it exactly, but it's called ant infestation. Uh, I'm pronouncing A-U-N-T as ant, uh, so you can say aunt, and I'm not talking about little bugs, <laughs> but this is uh, ladies. Uh, this is aunt infestation. But in this uh, commercial, these this couple, they have this new house, and they're talking about the advantages of Geico, homeowners, and car insurance. They have a combination, how well it works, and how happy they are with their new home. But in this commercial, their ants come in to visit them, different ones. And these ants are very critical, critical about everything. Everything's wrong, this is, this is bad, you know, you're doing this wrong. Very critical of the husband and the wife and so forth. And so they're showing how all these critical comments they make. And then at the end of the commercial, one of the ants asked the husband, who is her nephew, uh, he, she says to him, did you get my friend a request? Did you get my friend request? <laughs> and he says, I'll check. <laughs> well, I was just thinking about, did you get my friend request? You know, if you, if, if, if you had that, if somebody played that commercial 20 years ago, they could understand about the ants and the criticizing and all that kind of thing. But when, when the ant said, did you get my friend request 20 years ago, that we wouldn't have any idea. What, what is she talking? What, 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 what does she mean? What is she talking about? Uh, just 20 years ago. So that's the problem here that these kinds of things come and go. And maybe 20, maybe 50 years ago, no one will know what that is or something, maybe 20 years, I don't know. So uh, that's the problem we face, this historical difference, cultural difference, and so on. So by studying these kinds of things, it can help us in our uh, understanding of the scriptures. All right, let's look then at the history of the intertestamental period here. And I was not sure exactly where to begin here because, you know, we really start around 400 BC and we start with Persia and so forth. And, but my thinking was, uh, you know, I'm not sure all of us have had the opportunity to study this history and know about Cyrus and Artaxerxes and Xerxes and... <laughs> Ahasuerus and all these people like that. So uh, I thought that I would just review and start 
with some well-known, with a well-known period and just kind of start from there and work our way down. So we'll all be on the same page historically and so forth. So I thought we would start with the kingdom of Israel and uh, start with David and then Solomon and just kind of go forward on that. So um, we're talking here about what I'm going to call the ancient Near East. Now, I put a map up here of modern day Near East. Or the problem here, again, with terms, uh, in biblical studies or other studies, we call this area the ancient Near East. It is sort of the Near East because right here is Greece, and that's Europe. So this is the West, <laughs> and over here is the East, and this is the Near East. Now, in the 20th century, the term Middle East was supplied to this. So this is called the Middle East. But in ancient times, this was the Near East. China was the Far East, Near East, Far East. That makes sense to me. Why this is called the Middle East, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, it is. But this is the ancient Near East, and this is the land we're talking about. And here's Israel down here today, and there's Jordan beside it, and Syria over here, Iraq here, Saudi Arabia down here, and Iran, and Turkey over here. So we're talking about uh, this particular area here. Um, this is the ancient Near East, and I'm showing up slide here from 2000 BC. We're going to go further than that, obviously, but just to show you that these empires are pretty ancient. They come and they go. Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, or Egypt has already been there for another thousand, thousand years before this. But these empires, they, they, they rise and they fall, they rise and they fall. So we have the Hittites up here, which we don't hear much about. We hear a little about in the Old Testament and uh, Babylon, Assyria, and they get bigger and smaller and so forth. These are the kingdoms. And uh, here we get to about 1200 BC, the Hittites get larger, Syrians. Here's Canaan and so forth, Egypt down here. Now this is an important area right here because if you wanna come over here from the east, if you wanna come over from here, you just don't wanna go across the desert here. <laughs> So the natural route is to go up here and come down in this circle like this right there. So this area here is called the Levant. And this is a, uh, a treasured area. And so people want control of it. Egypt wants control of it. All these nations want control. So Israel is right in the middle of a, of a very desired area. And so that's uh, 1200 BC. Um, so here's David and Solomon. Now, of course, David starts off small. Israel starts off small and expands larger. And this is uh, David, uh, Solomon's king and expands, you know, all the way out here, all the way down here. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about uh, these particular areas. So let's talk about that a little bit. First about David, who reigned from 1010 to 970. Um, he became king over Judah in 1010 BC after Saul's death. And he reigned in seven and a half years in Hebron. Hebron was the chief city of Judah at that time. 
And after the murder of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, the elders of Israel asked David to become king of Israel. And so he becomes the, the, the king of a united Israel, Judah and Israel together. We just call it Israel then for 33 years. So it reigned for about 40 years altogether. And David um, conquered Jerusalem and made it the capital of his kingdom. Here's what Jerusalem looked like in David's day. Uh, this is the city of David here. And in the Old Testament, it's called Mount Zion. This is Mount Zion. It's kind of a mountain, as I'll show you in just a moment, a little bit. Uh, if you've been there, you can know it's, it is a little higher than the valleys. And Jerusalem is surrounded by three valleys that protect it. Not one on the north here, but on the east, on the west, on the south. On the east, you've got the Kidron Valley. And this is a deep valley. On the west, you've got a central valley, or you had one. That valley has been filled in today. So if you go to Jerusalem, if you ever get to go there, uh, you don't really see a central valley, but you can see the Hinnon Valley down here. So it's kind of protected. It's up a little higher there from the surrounding valley. And this is the area, uh, Zion, city of David, uh, that we're talking about. Uh, this is a modern day picture of what it looks like. And I'm trying to show you the city of David down here. There's that central valley here, what was there. Now, this is the Temple Mount today, much larger than what it was in Solomon's day. It's been expanded by Herod to be twice as big. But this is what it looks like today with the Dome of the Rock here and so forth. Mount, Mount of Olives is over here. It looks flat, but this is a steep, steep, down, steep hill down here and a deep valley down here. So there's a valley down here and around here, and there was a valley here. So this, you were protected on three sides here, except for up here where the temple was ultimately built. Um, this is what uh, it looked like in David's day. Up here is the threshing floor that, da that David bought and Solomon built the temple on. The temple will be up here, but here is the city of David, Jerusalem with the uh, walls around it and the Gihon Spring down here. Um, if you saw on that picture of the Gihon Spring, there's a natural spring here for water. If you're going to have a city, you need water. And there's a natural source of water right there, which is very valuable for Israel. And so that's what, that's what it, Jerusalem would look like in, in David's day. Uh, then we come to Solomon. Solomon, uh, the son of David, by Bathsheba, you remember, uh, he continued to expand his father's, David's kingdom. And he, he had building projects, included, remember, a temple uh, for the Lord. Um, however, uh, his administrative and financial policies, coupled with major flaws in his personal and religious life, led the country to the brink of ruin. During the United Monarchy, the Hebrews were a major superpower in the ancient Near East as other nations were weak. So in time of David and Solomon, uh, the other nations, uh, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they were all fairly weak. And so they were, a, they were a big player, Israel was at this particular time. Um, so here is uh, what Jerusalem looked like in Solomon's time. Now we have added this Northern part here where the temple is. Um, 
uh, in this particular area where the Dome of the Rock is today, right here. That we assume, believe the Dome of the Rock is right where the temple was, the first temple was, and the second temple was. Um, here's what it would have looked like, you know, an artist's conception of Jerusalem with the added section up here of the Temple Mount and Temple area and so forth. And if you saw that picture of uh, what the Temple Mount looks like today, it's much bigger because it was expanded on three sides. Uh, Herod couldn't expand it over here on the east side because there's a valley there, the Kidron Valley, and you didn't expand it. So he expanded it going south, going north, and going west. And he doubled the size of this, what's called Esplanade or the plain there. He doubled the size of that uh, in, uh, started before Jesus was born. And so this is what it would look like in uh, Solomon's day. Now, um, in spite of his wisdom, one of the problems for Solomon, you remember, was he allowed permitted pagan deities, pagan worship in the land of Israel. These were primarily brought in, you remember, by his many wives. He had a lot of wives, as you know. Mainly, he married these for political reasons, political connections, agreements, treaties. But God wasn't happy with, the, with that situation at all, remember, and he decreed punishment in the form of a split kingdom after Solomon's death. And Solomon's, uh, Solomon was not well liked by a lot of the tribes because he had these expensive building projects, he had high taxation, he conscripted, conscripted uh, people for military service, he forced labor, he centralized power, he, you know, he, the royal family faced a lot of opposition. And these factors and others led to a division of the kingdom after Solomon's death. The 10 Northern tribes, as we'll see, split off um, after Solomon's death. So let's talk about the divided kingdom here. The division of the kingdom came at the coronation of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The northern tribes rebelled against the house of David and made Jeroboam their king because Rehoboam would not reduce the load of labor, conscription, and heavy burden. So they went to him, remember, and they said, hey, your father imposed all this. And he said, no, I want to make it worse on you. <laughs> not a wise move. Well, the southern tribes remained under the rule of Davidic kings with Solomon's son Rehoboam as king, but the, uh, the other tribes revolted. So you've got now the kingdom divided. You've got Judah, which basically two, two tribes generally, um, and Israel, about 10 tribes in the north, separate kingdoms, as you can see. Uh, these were two rival states, and they became less powerful. So the, the height of the power was David and Solomon, and now the power of these two states diminishes as they separate, goes their separate ways, and other major ancient Near Eastern powers rise in their rise uh, through the years. Uh, at times, Judah and Israel were at war with each other. At other times, they had friendly alliances, you know, and all this came to an end when the northern kingdom was destroyed in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And so let's take a look at that. I've got a list there of notes. Uh, 
I've put in your notes of kings of Israel and Judah. You can find this in about anywhere. So we've got the divided kingdom. Let's talk about Israel at first. Uh, the northern kingdom uh, called Israel, sometimes called Ephraim or Manasseh, was composed of approximately 10 of Hebrew, the Hebrew tribes, occupied the larger portion of the geographical area. Eventually, Samaria was built as its capital. Various forms of pagan idolatry or paganism mixed with the worship of the Lord prevailed as the popular and sometimes official religion of Israel. Um, some of the 19 kings, that there, um, some of the 19 kings of, of Israel were very good politically and militarily. People like Omri, uh, Jeroboam II, you know. But uh, the Bible, in evaluating all these men spiritually, has a very negative view of all of them. It says about every one of them that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. So it's not very, not commending at all. Now, Judah, uh, two tribes, the southern kingdom called Judah, occupied the area held by approximately two tribes. Its population was enlarged by numbers of the priestly tribe of Levi who moved into the area after the political division. Jerusalem, the city established as the capital by David, David and the location of the temple erected by Solomon remained the political, religious, and cultural center in Judah. Although the influence of idolatry and pagan religions was felt with increasing strength in Judah, its progress was much slower than in Israel. The onslaught of spiritual and moral decay was occasionally checked by revivals and devotion to the law and worship of the Lord led by certain kings, Asa, you know, Hezekiah, and so forth. All 20 rulers of Judah were described, descended from David, I'm sorry. Only eight of them received commendation for doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And two of those went into apostasy even after they received that, uh, that, common, that con commendation. Um, so there's the uh, kings of Judah. Um, here is, you know, what we're going to be looking at this foreign domination of Israel that continues, uh, except for the period of Jewish independence, uh, 166 to 63 for about a hundred years. Israel was Judah at least was a Judah was an independent gained independence. And we'll see that that's a very important period. But we got Assyria, and then Babylonia, and then Persia, then Greece, of course, the Jewish period of independence, and then the Romans come in in 63 BC, and that's where we're at in the New Testament period. So we want to look at that, those periods. So let's look at the Assyrian period, the Assyrian captivity. Uh, from 730 BC onward, um, well, let me, let me uh, just show you a map here, what we're talking about. Now, here's Assyria. Uh, starts off very small, as you can see, around 2000 BC. Uh, so these are ethnic peoples, started off. Babylon is there and so forth, Elam, Mary. And this kind of shows you <clears throat> how they 
uh, captured places and Nineveh is their capital. Here's where they start off in this blue sort of area here. And uh, they expand as we go outward here to these other areas over time, eventually coming all the way down here and capturing the Northern Kingdom, taking everything but Judah. Uh, they never took Judah, of course, that the Babylonians come in and do that, but they, they take all this territory. So they're the big, big power uh, in the Middle East. So I say from 730 onward, Assyria, for all practical purposes, was master over the Eastern Mediterranean seaboard and thus over the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. So they were vassal states. So uh, before Israel was, was destroyed, it was a vassal. That means they were really under the control of Assyria. They had to pay taxes, pay homage. So, so, so for Judah, Judah was, never, was not conquered, but they were in a tough spot. Judah was either being pressured by Egypt or by Assyria. Uh, eventually, the Assyrians completely destroyed Israel in 722 BC when it rebelled. The Assyrians deported 27,000 of the people of Israel and repopulated the area with foreigners. These foreigners intermarried with the surviving natives, Hebrews, and the Samaritans, the New Testament, were their descendants. And so um, the, you have the fall of Samaria, and these people uh, the, from the northern kingdom are deported back into Assyria. And so uh, the green uh, you know, areas are the deported Israelites. And then the Assyrians, they bring in people from other places and bring them back to this land. Their theory was, if you take these people, the leading citizens out of the country, you can't, they won't be able to revolt. They won't be able to have a counter-revolution. They can't revolt against you because they're in another country. And then they bring in other people to your country. And the people they brought in, of course, were pagans. And uh, remember the Bible talks about how there were terrible disasters in the land. So the king of Assyria had Hebrews come in and try to teach them about Yahweh, the Lord. And so Samaria becomes a, a mix of some true religion and pagan religion. And of course, that's what the Israelites, Nehemiah and others, don't, don't have anything to do with the Samaritans because they're not really following the Old Testament correctly and truly. They, they're a syncretistic kind of uh, religion although the Samaritans uh, did consider themselves true Israelites, and they do today. Uh, there are Samaritans left, uh, less than a thousand totally, total, um, and they still think of themselves as the true Israelites. But um, so the, the Bible uh, talks about the invasion of 722 when, this, when the Assyrians took Israel into captivity, and they almost took um, Judah, you remember? The only thing that saved Judah was Hezekiah and this miraculous intervention of the Lord. You remember in 701 BC, after they had taken Israel, uh, Sennacherib tries to come down and take uh, Judah, but the Lord sends an angel and destroys 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Um, and so that saves Judah at that time 
from being taken over by Assyria. Um, number two here, uh, Assyria made the Aramaic language the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. This is important because Aramaic continued to be the lingua franca of the ancient Near East until the conquest of Alexander the Great. So we're gonna be talking about this Aramaic language some, because you remember we learned that the uh, Old Testament, the Hebrews basically spoke Hebrew. There is some Aramaic there in the Old Testament, but mainly Hebrew, that was their language. That was the language when they were taken into captivity. And, uh, but the language, the, the international language of the, of the whole area of the ancient Near East was, people had their local languages, but the, the main language was this Aramaic language. Aramaic is a, is a member of, of the Semitic family. So languages are divided into categories like English is Indo-European. You know, it's related to Italian and French and, and uh, Spanish and so forth. There's similarities. Uh, Hebrew is quite different. It's very difficult for seminary students to learn Hebrew. We, we teach them Greek first because Greek is a lot like English. But Hebrew ain't nothing like English at all. <laughs> nothing in common at all. So it's more difficult. It's a Semitic language. And these are the Semitic languages, even Arabic is and Aramaic, but Akkadian. And this is the Tigris and Euphrates, the Mesopotamian. But and this at this period, uh, this Aramaic language was becoming the universal language of the entire area. So that becomes important to us as we'll see. Um, so here's an incident about that. You remember we said that uh, when Assyria uh, 701 came down and tried to take Judah from Hezekiah, the Lord sent this angel but to destroy them. But when they came down, they first came down and they wanted to tell uh, the people of Jerusalem, they need to give up. You know, you don't have any choice, you don't have any chance. And this is the text here. Um, it says in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib king of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his officer and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king and Eliakim son of Hilkiah, to the palace administrator, uh, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, listen, tell Hezekiah, this is what your great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing your con this confidence of yours? In other words, he's saying, you need to give up, friends. You, know, you can't resist us. You say you have the counsel and the might of, for war, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you spending, depending that, you're, that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces the hand of anyone who leans on it. So, you know, Judah's looking to Israel, to, Israel, to, to Pharaoh to kind of help them, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we're depending on the Lord, our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before the altar in Jerusalem. Now, this is all propaganda. 
Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without the word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Now, they see, this is a real problem. They're saying, hey, the Lord told us to come down here and do this to you, <laughs> you know, which is not, not true, of course. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joab, said to the field commander, so this is the, this is the uh, Hezekiah's men, the Israelites or Judeans, the Judah, people of Judah, the Hebrews. They said to the field commander, please speak to your servants in Aramaic since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. So these, people, these Assyrians come down and they speak in Hebrew so that everybody can hear it. They want to frighten everybody, frighten them to death, you know, and they should be frightened. And, uh, and the, and, and, and the leaders of, of, you know, of Jerusalem say, listen, speak to us in Aramaic. We can understand your language. So you see that going back and forth in the Old Testament, and we'll see examples of that as we go along here. Well, that brings us to the Babylonian captivity um, next after the, the captivity of the Assyrians, at least for Israel. Uh, the Assyrian empire weakened in the seventh century. That's the 600s. And by 624 BC, Judah came under Egyptian control. So remember, Egypt is trying to control this Levant, <coughs> Israel, this area. So are the other major powers. The Babylonian king Nabopolazar, 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 I should say Nabopolazar, I guess, conquered the Assyrian capital of, of Nineveh in 612 BC. So now the Babylonians are on the march and they take the Assyrian capital in 612 BC, which at that time was the largest city in the ancient Near East. Nabopolazar's son, Nebuchadnezzar II, we just call him Nebuchadnezzar, set about to conquer all the ancient Near East. Uh, after a decisive defeat of Egypt at Carchemish, Carchemish in 605, I'm just going to show you what is happening here. So this is kind of a little bit how the rise of Babylon down here. And uh, they come up and take Nineveh. And then they come up to this place right here. If you can see this, Carchemish. So Pharaoh has come up here. He's kind of taking, he's kind of, uh, Judah's kind of a vassal of Egypt. And they meet up here at Carchemish. And the Babylonians destroy the, the, the Egyptians here. So the, the Egyptians have to retreat. And so this is how Israel gets into trouble, or Judah gets into trouble with, um, uh, with the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar. So after that defeat, then Nebuchadnezzar comes on down. He takes Jerusalem and captured the best of the sons of royalty and the nobles including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, among others, Judah becomes a vassal of Babylon. Um, so this is, it's hard to see this, but this is Nebuchadnezzar's campaigns. So he has different campaigns. He has uh, this one in 605 when he comes down. And all he does is just make Judah a kind of a vassal. They've got a, they're under the control of Babylon. Uh, they don't destroy uh, uh, Jerusalem 
uh, at this time. Um, so um, number two here, um, Judah soon, Judah soon rebelled against Babylon, but Nebuchadnezzar attacked again in 597. So he had, you know, he attacks in 605, gets, gets Judah under his control. He comes back set 597. King Jehoiakim, the queen mother, the princes, and 10,000 leading servants, citizens, smiths and craftsmen were taken into captivity along with servants and plunder, uh, a devastating blow for Judah as a nation. The prophet Ezekiel was taken off to Babylon as well. Nebuchadnezzar stripped the temple and the king's house of its valuables, taking them to Babylon too. Zedekiah was installed, Hebrew was installed as a puppet ruler, but he rebelled also. Nebuchadnezzar began an 18-month siege that finally led to the downfall of the city and the end of the Judean monarchy in July 586. The city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586. So this is, uh, this is again, um, coming down, Nebuchadnezzar coming down and taking that area. Uh, anyone who was rich of noble birth, who owned land or was a skilled artisan was taken to Babylon. This left behind only the poor and uneducated to care for the vineyards and crops. Instead of being dispersed throughout the country, the exiles were transported to ruined cities near the city of Babylon. Um, various, various cities, um, in Babylon. Uh, they were essentially allowed to govern their own cities under the sovereign authority of the Babylonian Empire. So they were taken uh, from uh, Judah, the wealthy, the rich, nobility, artisans, craftsmen were taken to Babylon and, uh, and lived there. Now this was, uh, this was, uh, this was difficult for many Jews. And remember, Pastor Ken preached that sermon, that sermon from Psalm 137 uh, a few weeks ago. And it says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps for their, our captors asked us for songs or tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land. So um, nevertheless, even though that's what this Psalm says, I think that's the initial response that they had because eventually they became a very, many of them became very happy in Babylon. Uh, they experienced economic well-being and some found opportunities to rise high in the government like Daniel, you know, in the government. Uh, there's evidence that they were able to form their own uh, council of elders and to have their own prophets and priests in their midst as well. In fact, Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 29.1, he addresses these people in Babylon. He addresses the priests and the elders uh, and so forth, prophets. Uh, so in spite of that sorrow in Psalm 137, life in Babylon was pretty comfortable for a lot of these exiles, and they were unwilling to return. So when they were able to turn under uh, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, some of them wouldn't go. 
And in fact, Jews have lived in Babylon, I guess until recent years, for all that time, you know, uh, from uh, 586 right up till almost the present time, Jews were there throughout the Middle East. They've been, of course, really persecuted in recent years by various regimes there. Uh, as I say here, um, while in Babylon, number four, the Jews adopted a calendar that remains the basis for the Jewish, uh, Jewish, uh, remains the basis of the, of the Jewish calendar today. Um, the Babylonians utilized a 12 month lunar calendar, you know, 30 days per month, uh, each with a, uh, and, and uh, and month. That means, uh, you have to add a month every six years because, you know, 30 times 12 is 360 and there's 365 days in a year. So every six years, that's 30 days. You add another month. They added a second ADAR month. Um, the names um, of the months in the Babylonian revision of the calendar appear in the post-exilic books. Uh, and uh, like Ezra, I mean, Nehemiah, uh, Esther, Ezra. The reckoning of a day from sunrise, sunset to sunset was the same for the Babylonians as it was for the Hebrews. The synagogue came into existence as a place of prayer and study of the scriptures. So we believe, where did the synagogue come from? Well, they were away from the temple. The temple had been destroyed. There's no temple. What do you do then? Daniel, as you remember, Pastor Ken said, prayed toward Jerusalem, but there's no temple there. And so... Um, they developed synagogues where you could pray, you could study the scriptures, the Torah, especially, and so forth. And so, um, um, number five, the exile switched from speaking Aramaic, Hebrew to Aramaic, which was, as we said earlier, the lingua franca of the ancient Near East. So the Assyrians spoke Aramaic, the Babylonians, that was their lingua franca too. So here's these Jews, they go into exile, they speak Hebrew, but they're there, you know, 70 years. And naturally their children pick up this Aramaic and you have to have Aramaic to survive. And so when the Jews uh, come back, uh, they have this Aramaic language. They spoke and wrote in Hebrew until they were taken to captivity. But, uh, Aramaic remained their first language, though Hebrew never died out and was, of course, the language of the Old Testament scriptures. There's a lot of debate about what languages were spoken in the New Testament, but Aramaic seems to have been the major one. Uh, they did change the form of their Hebrew alphabet, what we now call Paleo-Hebrew to Aramaic square script. So they actually changed to write their scriptures like uh, Aramaic did. So there's the top. There's two, two inscriptions here. This is the Sloan inscription taken from a tunnel in Jerusalem. And the top is Hebrew, our Paleo-Hebrew. This is how we believe Moses would have written and how Hebrew was written up until, you know, 500, uh, 500 BC or so. And that's the way it was written, that alphabet. And they, What's below is the same thing exactly. It's just a different way to write the alphabet. That's called Aramaic square script. 
So if you pick up a Hebrew Bible today, you'll see what's on the bottom there. And that's how Hebrew is written. That's how Hebrew is written in Jerusalem. That's how it's written in Israel today. And so, um, 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 as I said, um, here, I didn't read all of this. Um, even though Greek became the uh, lingua franca of the ancient Near East after Alexandra, Alexander the Great, uh, among the Jews in Israel, Aramaic remained the main spoken language and was probably Jesus' first language. Greek, however, was the most common language throughout most of the ancient world in Jesus' day, including the city of Rome itself. But there are 268 verses in the Old Testament written in Aramaic. So the Jews pick up Aramaic, they come back, and they... And when they come back and return, they still use Aramaic mainly for their day-to-day -day language. And when they're in the synagogue and they read the scriptures in Hebrew, they usually have somebody stand up and give the Aramaic translation because the people in the synagogue, most of them don't know Hebrew, don't understand Hebrew very well. So they, they uh, have an, an Aramaic translation of that. That's called a Talmud, Aram uh, I'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about that a little later here, but uh, so it, that becomes an important language and it'll come up as we go from time to time. Well, I can see that we have uh, gone over here a little bit, and uh, the next time we'll talk about the Persian period here, and finally we'll get to <laughs> went a little long on this here, but I, I was my thinking was that we will kind of go through this. And we will, so we'll kind of all be on 